We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicola Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And Klaus Badenhagen, who of course reports from Taiwan for German media. Great to be back here. Tonight we'll be discussing the arrival of coronavirus vaccines from the COVAX Global Vaccine Sharing Program and the expansion of the government's inoculation program. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs touting social media statements as proof of improving Taiwan-India ties. Some rather alarming numbers about the birth rate, Taiwan's green parties and the Kaohsiung Agriculture Bureau saying that self-defence with a BB gun against macaques is, well, it's over. Okay, but we'll begin with the latest news about last Friday's horrific train crash in Hualien. Now, the Transportation Safety Board released its initial findings into the incident on Tuesday of this week, with Board Chairman Yang Hongzhi saying the fatal collision between a Taroko Express train and a crane truck occurred less than two minutes after the crane fell onto the track. Now, according to Yang, the results of the probe are based on data and video chips retrieved from the train's driver recorder and its automatic protection and control and management systems. Now, on Thursday, Yang. Yang released more information, saying a second chip belonging to the crane truck's dash cam had been retrieved, and it provides key findings regarding what happened to the vehicle immediately prior to the accident. Yang says that chip contains a one-minute film that captures images of excavators at the construction site above the scene of the accident and includes a conversation between two of the characters that are currently being questioned by prosecutors. Meanwhile, reports are claiming that evidence is now suggesting that the driver of the crane truck that caused the crash tried but failed to move the truck from where it had been, hence the chip from the crane truck is now being covered by prosecutors. Now, Transport Minister Lin Jialong has submitted his written resignation to take responsibility for the incident, and speaking during a Legislative Transportation Committee hearing, Lin said that he submitted his formal resignation earlier this week to both President Tsai Ing-wen and Premier Su Jing-chung, saying that he's willing to take full political responsibility for the accident. Meanwhile, President Tsai Ing-wen on Wednesday told a DP Central Standing Committee meeting that the Taiwan Railways Administration needs to make major reforms in certain areas. Tsai described reform as being a necessary step and said that action will be taken to resolve problems with the Railway Administration's organisational culture to address its long-standing financial losses. Tsai said organisational adjustments will be introduced to ensure that all issues can be solved and she also said that the Railway Network's financial problems are a major concern due to the operating of some rather unprofitable rail lines, meaning the company is consistently running at a loss and she also went on to say that the government must look into the issue of whether or not to privatise the state-run company. So Klaus, anything there grabs your attention? (laughs) Well, you didn't mention Premier Su who, of course, put an emphasis on making Taiwan's uh, railway lines safer by building an automated um, surveillance system that um, basically sounds the alarm whenever something falls onto the tracks as it did here, which sounds really sensible. Could be an opportunity for an Internet of Things-like system, lots of sensors. Taiwan could really implement this and should, I think. And Premier Su, of course, said that uh, no matter the cost, this is what needs to be done, basically whatever it takes. And now we have President Tsai, who, to my surprise, emphasized that um Taiwan Railways should run like a profitable business and no longer turn in a loss. And I'm really wondering, first of all, why she puts such a priority on this? And, I mean, you being British, of course, have something to say about railway privatization, I guess. And um, also how this fits together. I mean, investing massively in security and at the same time expecting 
Taiwan Railway to turn into a profitable business-like thing. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a terrible tragedy and our thoughts are still with the families and their, their, um, of the victims and the victims themselves. Um, but I, I think um, it, it's good that we're now starting to look at what can be done to improve rail safety and to kind of take a really serious look at this. And um, I think one of the things that needs to be done is to um, just have a better overview of uh, construction companies as well, because um, we're still waiting for the results of the investigation. But uh, at first view, it it looks very much like um, there are some deep questions to be answered about negligence and also about safety of construction sites. And I think that's something that not only affects the railway, but it, it, it's, it's something that affects the whole country in, uh, across many different spectrums. And we have seen some terrible accidents and tragedies in recent years that have been linked to um, construction companies. And I, I do think that should be a, a, a huge part of any safety review about who has an overview of, of um, construction companies and, and what they're doing. What about the privatisation issue? Well, I mean, that, that's, um, I don't know if that's got immediate implications for safety. I think that needs to be the priority right now. Um, there are other ways that the, the government could help to um, fund the railway system. And, and that's definitely something that should be considered. But um, I don't think that should be number one. Well, Sai apparently said that um, the fact that Taiwan Railways um, expenses add up to a huge financial burden, harms not only worker morale, but also operational efficiency and safety. So she must have some some thoughts there. I, I just don't see how... I mean, turn, turning, making it profitable means uh, raising ticket prices. It means um, stopping unprofitable lines. It means trying to save money wherever possible. I just don't see how this can make the whole system safer. The fact that construction companies and construction sites needs to be uh, stricter, overseen and, and regulated. And of course, Nicola, it's got rather political. It has, it has, yeah. And I, 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 I really don't think now is the time to be um, uh, basically making political accusations on the back of a tragedy. Um, I mean, we saw very quickly from the opposition parties that they were immediately pointing the finger um, at the transport minister, at the government. And um, really, I, th- I think... Um, there needs to be time to allow the investigation to proceed and to reflect on what's happened and not to take cheap political shots um, on on the back of a tragedy. Um, um, first of all, um, I really think that people's thoughts should be with the, the, the victims and their families and then secondly towards how can we improve this. And then, of course, we need to look and see if there ultimately who is responsible and if any political responsibility needs to be taken for for lapses but you know allow the investigation to to find out first was what's happened before you start making charges against individuals I, I just think that's in very poor taste yeah I'm not so sure that the KMT really made a smart move there I think it was just two or three days after the accident Transport Minister Lin Jialong had already offered his resignation and then the KMT came out and said, now Premier Su has to step down and President Tsai needs to apologize. I think they maybe misjudged the public opinion or the, the public, the public's priorities in that moment. And um, from, I mean, uh, 
being the opposition party, of course, it's their job to jump at any opening allowing them to attack the government. But in this case, I think they also uh, took a step back by now because maybe they saw that this uh, was not the appropriate step in, in that moment. And moving on now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre says that over 20,000 people have now received their first shot of the AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine. Currently, only medical workers, employees at health clinics, pharmacies and government quarantine centres, as well as athletes representing Taiwan in the upcoming Tokyo Olympics, are eligible to receive the vaccine. And health officials say that number of people encompasses some 488,000 people. However, from next Monday, the vaccine rollout will be expanded to include epidemic prevention workers at the local and central government levels, as well as those with a higher risk of exposure to the virus due to their jobs. Now, the expanded programme also covers officials in central and local governments that are crucial to maintaining the epidemic prevention system. And it also includes village chiefs and several other people, like foreign diplomats. If you're a foreign diplomat, you will soon become eligible to receive the vaccine. There's also, this week, the government said that, well, they're going to possibly open the vaccine to people that could want to pay for inoculations by late April. And they say they've got some between 5,000 and 10,000 doses will be reserved for those paying to receive the vaccine. Now, Health Minister Chen Shih-jong has been reiterating this week that there's no evidence that the AstraZeneca vaccine leads to blood clots, but he's stressing that the Epidemic Command Centre is continuing to monitor the situation closely and will adjust the rollout as needed. Now, Taiwan took delivery of its first shipment of AstraZeneca vaccines allocated through the COVAX Global Vaccine Sharing Programme this past Sunday, and those 199,200 doses were shipped from Amsterdam on a flight operated by China Airlines. However, it was revealed this week that the batch expires on May the 31st, earlier than the initial batch that arrived in Taiwan last month, which was purchased directly from AstraZeneca. So, Klaus, there we go. They're going to roll out more vaccines, but of course 20,000, I believe the actual figure is 20,075 people have received the vaccines as we're recording the show. Well, vaccination started just about three weeks ago, so we could say roughly that... The vaccination rate is like 1,000 jabs a day, which is really slow because when you look at this new um, delivery of uh, this new batch of AstraZeneca vaccine, it expires end of May. That is nine weeks from now. And of, of course, the priority is to get it out there by now. So nine weeks and 200,000 doses, that means that you have to vaccinate about 3,000 people a day. So that means... If you don't want to run the risk of this delivery to expire, and maybe you cannot use it, maybe you need to throw it away, then vaccination has to, from now on, until the end of May, has to be at least three times as fast as it has been so far. So you need to, every day you need to vaccinate three times as many people, which is why, of course, government opened it up from the only healthcare workers to the priority groups two and three. So let's see how, how it moves on from here. I I am intrigued about the the slow uptake of of the vaccine, but you know I I, I think um, Taiwan has a plan. I think it's also um, subject to global realities. Um, uh, it doesn't have many vaccines at the moment, but more are, are definitely in the pipeline. And the the health minister has said that twenty million are in the pipeline. He hasn't said exactly when they're coming, but um, I mean the fact of the matter is that um, Taiwan has um it doesn't have an urgent need to do the vaccinations just now um the major implication is for travel um and so 
I think it's just being held hostage to uh, the fact that there there is a huge delay in the global supply chain. Um, but we spoke to Minister Chen, the Telegraph spoke to Minister Chen um, a couple of weeks ago, and he believes that, that Taiwan um, will basically be on a par with the rest of the developing world in terms of vaccine rollout by the, the second half of this year. Um, and I think it just requires a, a little bit of patience. Um, to Taiwan's advantage, um, it can, because it is not vaccinating too many people at the moment, it can see um, how vaccine rollouts have um, perform in other countries. Um, and it does have a bit of a luxury of kind of watching to see what happens and whether it should adjust its own vaccination programme. But, I mean, you do agree that it would not look good for Taiwan if they needed to throw away a batch of vaccines because they expired and not enough people were willing to step forward and say, I want to be among the first ones. Of course, but I think you're making a huge assumption there. I really don't think that Taiwan's going to throw away vaccines. I mean, those are based on your calculations. You know what the health ministry's plan is. I mean, maybe if uh, the vaccinations are approaching their expiration date and they haven't used them, I'm sure they have like a backup plan where they will offer them to different demographics graphics or also offer them to people who do want to travel and who would be willing to pay for them. I mean, I just think it's a, it's a bit of a gloomy outlook at the moment to assume that these vaccinations will expire. Do you think it's possibly people in Taiwan, Klaus, are a bit blasé about the coronavirus because, of course, it didn't really hit Taiwan badly? Yeah. And, of course, there's also concern about the safety of the AstraZeneca virus. Well, of, course, of course, people in Taiwan can afford the luxury of... Um, wait to to wait and see and uh, how things are developing and that's exactly what happened now i mean the first priority group was frontline healthcare workers more than 400,000 would have qualified and only 20,000 stepped forward so far and said i want to do this of course taiwan is in this comfortable position that it does not need to hurry they can keep on doing like they did so far but uh, minister chen has also gone on the record and said that we can lift the travel restrictions and we can ease the quarantine system as soon as we have 60% of the population vaccinated. And that is a huge step. To reach that, um, vaccination would actually need to move 75 times as fast as it did so far to reach that goal within one year, just to show you the magnitude of the numbers here. And it's, it is a number game in the end. And of course, Taiwan has the option of carrying on like it does so far, but... I think at some point when the rest of the world is largely vaccinated, it also does not want to be that country that got stuck in the shutting itself off from the world mode. I mean, that's kind of a luxury problem right now. But the narrative of how Taiwan is seen and how it is reported internationally, it can change really quickly. And I think... I think we need to see more um, public relations measures by the government to um, encourage more people and educate people more about the um, very small danger that AstraZeneca can pose in, in some cases. Uh, right now, I don't even see the daily vaccination numbers on the CDC's website. I mean, I, I do hope that Taiwanese journalists are um, asking for the updated numbers every day, but they are they are not even well, um, actively uh, promoting the, the daily progress in vaccinations. I think it's just, I, I think there's no need to rush at the moment. No, I think it's just too soon 
to to make these assumptions because first of all on the AstraZeneca vaccination I mean what better PR could you give it than the the health minister himself took it um you know and and there there has been press about yes there's a risk but it's a very small risk I think you know when you're talking about blood clots um it's it's a one in a million chance which you know our the British health minister said it's the same as you know possibly developing developing DBT on an airline on a, a long haul flight um, and and then you've, you've, you've kind of got to look at the pace of the rest of the world as well yes America is, is rapidly vaccinating people, the UK also um, but Europe is completely behind on vaccinations yeah. and <laughs> Germany definitely yeah and, and so is most of the developing world um, because they're being denied access to the vaccines um, so really when you're talking about global travel it's not going to be anytime soon because we have to be realistic about what happens when we open the borders and Taiwan's approach so far has been very cautious and it's it's set to remain cautious because there's just so many variables as well as the vac- vaccinations. We don't know at the moment how they perform against the variants. Um, and so really to, to be opening up borders, um, Taiwan is not going to be left behind anytime soon because nobody's really going to have that option. We're not going to see um, global travel uh, return to normal until at least next year. Um, and that's a very optimistic um, assessment. Um, the health minister said during the interview that, that we did that he believes that developed nations will probably be back to some kind of normality by next spring. Um, so really, Taiwan does have a bit of time at the moment um, and it, it can adjust its vaccination program and it can inf- find the best solution for its population. And I think we don't need to hit the alarm but- button yet. I think Taiwan is definitely well prepared to roll out a vaccination program uh, because the problem in Taiwan will not be the logistics, unlike in Germany, uh, as I have to admit, where it's just not work. We In Germany, they have a lot of vaccine, but they just cannot roll it out quickly enough and, and reach the people and give them appointments. I think that will not be the problem in Taiwan with the highly digitized uh, health system here. I think that will be really that will run really smoothly. So in, in Taiwan, we have two bottlenecks. One is the willingness of the people if, if they feel the need to be vaccinated and step forward or not. And the other one is, of course, the supply of the vaccines. Because right now, Taiwan uh, has... 100, 170,000 doses in the first batch and 199,200 in the second batch. So, so less than half a million. So they, they talk about... Um, that they secured 10 million doses from AstraZeneca and another 5 million AstraZeneca via the COVAX program and then 5 million from Moderna. But uh, we haven't seen them yet. And they are also not very open about sharing when they will arrive. Um, We had the whole discussion about the uh, BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine, where apparently at first uh, BioNTech um, well retreated from a delivery that they had already promised, and then it was about a Chinese company representing them and what role did they play. And then the ministry said, yeah, now we are in, dis- in, in discussions again, and it looks good. And a few weeks later, they've been asked again, and they said, well, no, we cannot say anything about this. And we have the domestic vaccine program. Two companies in Taiwan are working on their own vaccine, um, which are factored into the calculation. I mean, basically only, only they say... In the third, only in the third round. Though. Yeah, but, but basically they say, okay, we we secured 10 million doses 
no, 20 million doses, which is enough for 10 million people, half of Taiwan's population, and the rest will, we will probably make up with our own vaccine. But um, this vaccine apparently is in the in trial phases, but um, we also don't know a lot more about this. So at the moment, it does look good for Taiwan, but thinking into the future, there are some challenges where well, they need to prove that going another way also works just as well here. And moving on once again, away from the coronavirus this time, and talking about foreign affairs with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Tuesday of this week, citing an increase in social media-related interactions between Taipei and New Delhi as proof that relations between Taiwan and India are improving. Now, according to Ministry spokesman Joanne O, oh, India's Ministry of External Affairs sent its sympathies and condolences following last week's deadly train crash via Twitter and Facebook. And O oh said it's the first time an Indian Ministry of External Affairs official has issued such a statement of comfort to Taiwan in relation with a major disaster. So, Nicola, India and Taiwan getting closer. Of course, in Chi- Taiwanese tech companies are looking to move to India. India had a dispute with China on its border in the high, high Himalayas, of course, recently, which many people said was going to push India and closer to Taiwan. But saying that social media-related interactions are proof of that. A bit of a push? No, I don't, I don't think... I don't think it's a bit of a push. I think it's just a, it's it's basically a reflection of the underlying dynamics that we're already seeing between India and Taiwan. Um, Ties are already improving on a people-to-people basis. There's so many student Indian students are in Taiwan. Um, Also, trade. Um, India is Taiwan's 17th largest trading partner. Taiwan is India's 31st. Um, And in 2018, we saw. 40% 40% jump in bilateral trade. So that's a reflection of of um, improving political ties as well. Um, I think the, the tweet just um, shows that more overtly. And, and, and that's that's the difference, really, that it's it's been a bit more public, um, although really it shouldn't be surprising to, to anyone that, you know, a, a country, one country would express condolences to another when there's a, been a major tragedy. But but that's just the world that, that we live in and, and Taiwan has to live in just now. But um, it's, it's also a reflection of um, the political shift or the geopolitical shift in the world as well. Um, Taiwan's position has shifted China. China's behaviour has shifted dynamics in the region, and that includes India. Um, you mentioned the the border dispute where um, there were multiple casualties on both the, the Chinese and the Indian side. And that really, um, I think, uh, changed India's thinking towards um, ta- um, China, um, both the public thinking and the government's thinking. And... I think um, India is kind of falling in line with with the rest of the world or many other countries, should I say, that have had recent disputes with with China, whether it should be, whether it's in trade or whether it's actual um, kind of military tensions, um, in that people just don't want to toe China's line. Um, China's lost any goodwill that it had and people want to push back against China and I I think that we are seeing that um, in India-Taiwan relations just more in the terms of of things becoming uh, more cooperative and and just normal really. Let me ask you about the kind of people-to-people relations between um, Taiwan and India because obviously India is such an important natural strategic ally 
for Taiwan, both having their problems with uh, China, both being democracies. Um, U.S. is also strengthening its its ties with India and with Taiwan. Um, but what do you think the the average Taiwanese person thinks about India? Is there this kind of feeling that we, we sit in the same boat, we belong together? Because I remember about nine, ten years ago, long before the southbound policy, there also was talk about India needed hundreds or maybe thousands of Mandarin teachers. And they um, talked to the Taiwanese government and the government said, yeah, of course, we will send thousands of Taiwanese teachers to India. And in, in the end, I think almost no one went. So um, is it could it be the case that a lot of Taiwanese still have maybe problematic assumptions when they think about India or look at India? Um, well, I, I could never claim to get inside the mind of the average Taiwanese person, I'm afraid. But um, I mean, I, I, I think that um, definitely over the past few years, um, I've noticed, um, or, or over the past year in particular, I've noticed kind of warming of ties. I think, I think ties between peoples have always been um, warm uh, between the, pe the, the people of both countries. I think probably um, Taiwan and India relations have perhaps suffered from from uh, a kind of phenomenon that Taiwan has regularly suffered from is that not many people know much about it or where it is or it's not a huge tourist destination and I, I, I think that's all slowly changing um, certainly after the pandemic I think there'll be more of a chance to do that but Over the past year, there has definitely been um, a lot more online solidarity between Taiwan and India. You've seen um, the Milk Tea Alliance yeah. um, that has been the kind of um, uh, the sign on social media of uh, people coming together to promote democratic values and especially um, counter uh, Chinese aggression or, or, or um, Chinese um, Uh, authoritarianism and India has been very much part of that and you've seen a lot of solidarity from Indian the Indian public on social media especially on Twitter um, showing support for, for Taiwan and I think there's really been a lot more awareness over the past year especially during the pandemic and during the border um, dispute of what um, of where Taiwan is and the issues it faces and the the threat it faces from China because um, India has realized that or the Indian public has has also felt under threat from China um, and I think that's really shifted attitudes and and shifted the public's attitudes certainly to um, to be more favorable towards Taiwan is there any discussion about possible delivery of weapons systems from India to Taiwan Because not, I do, I think they are producing a lot of their own stuff. Not that I'm aware of. No. Anyway, on that note, we'll take a short break, but we will return after these rather important commercials. <laughs> well.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Ministry of the Interior This Week released the latest birth rate figures and they were rather alarming as they showed that 9,601 births were recorded in January and that marked the first time the number has dropped to below 10,000 in a single month. The number of births in January of last year stood at 12,510 and the announcement of the new monthly low comes after the Ministry reported a record low 165,249 births for the whole of 2020. That figure was lower than the 173,156 deaths recorded last year, with officials now warning that that marked the first time Taiwan has recorded negative population growth. Now, some analysts have said that the low number of births in January could be related to the coronavirus pandemic, as they say many people might have delayed wedding ceremonies, resulting in fewer married couples and newborns. However, they say whether that's the case or not can only be determined if the number of births subsequently rises or falls. However, a recent survey of young Taiwanese people showed that only 36.5% of men and 19.6% of women believe that marriage is important, a trend that some say is key to the island's low birth rate. So, Nicola, there we go. More people, basically, nearly the same amount of people died last year as were born. Yeah, it's a, it's a problem that we've long known about, and it's it's not only a Taiwanese problem, it's also, you see the same um, kind of... Uh, uh, the same kind of patterns in South Korea and Japan and and East Asia. I I mean, obviously, action has to be taken. It's not a sustainable. Um, it's not a sustainable situation. Um, there's a number of things that that can be done and should be done. I don't know if they are being done, but um, you know, certainly there are issues related to unaffordable housing um, and also just low wages. People just can't afford to have children, um, and also a certain stigma about having children out of, out of marriage as well. Taiwan's quite a conservative country, um, and so. Um, you know the government really does have to, and I'm sure it is looking ahead to to try and find solutions. But they they do need to be urgent, and I, I definitely think that that more immigration and making immigration easier would be a big part of that solution. Of definitely, I mean immigration, naturalization. That once you decide you really want to have your roots here, um, it's easier to to become a citizen. I mean that's that's all been as you said that's all been discussed for a long time, and what we are seeing is some like piecemeal little reforms here and there, little bonus for parents maybe in Taipei City and another one in New Taipei City and they are lowering the kindergarten tuition fees a little bit and now they introduce a new um, hoarder, a, a new um, speculation tax on, on owning and selling property but um, none of this is actually going to sway a number of people's minds here. So what I think uh, needs to be done is on the one hand, implement a lot of these steps that have been discussed for a long time in a, in a more succinct manner. And on the other hand, um, really be serious about changing the immigration situation. Because um, otherwise, demographics is moving really, really slowly. And we can already see where it's going to go in the next 10 or 20 years. And I don't want to sit here with you guys in 10 years again and now it's the first time that the number of births has fallen below 5,000 and we still complain about the whole, the same situation and the same problems. What about the coronavirus issue? Black, trying to blame, partly blame the coronavirus issue, Nicola? Well, it could be true, but I don't think that's conclusive yet, is it? But there, there, I think there is a dynamic where people don't want to have um, children outside of marriage because they will be judged 
Um, and, you know, that's not, again, that's not exclusively Taiwanese, but, but Taiwan is quite a conservative country when, when it comes to family values. Um, so maybe that, that is a factor that's played into it. I, I, although I, I don't really know if there have been fewer weddings this year. I mean, I, I went to one a couple of weeks ago and, and certainly it's possible to, to get married. Um, Was the bride pregnant? No, no, she wasn't. Oh, right, okay. Um, but, and it wouldn't have been a problem if she was, but, you know, she wasn't. Um, I think really when it comes to both marriage and and um, children, they're, they're very much intertwined in terms of young people, I guess, just don't feel they can afford to do either. They don't feel that um, graduate wages haven't shifted for years. Um, and they're still very low, and I think that's that's one of the kind of major issues at the heart of this, is that um, young people are qualified and they're they're not finding the well-paid jobs that they need, or they're not they're just not being paid enough. Um, so, th- you know, they they can't afford to then have their own place. Um, and I think all of these factors are really delaying both marriage and childbirth, and um, that that's one of the things that needs to be addressed. And Taiwan's Green Parties are the subject of a new book by David Fell, the director of the Centre of Taiwan Studies at SOAS University of London. Titled Taiwan's Green Parties, Alternative Politics in Taiwan, the book explores the history of Taiwan's Greens from the mid-1990s to today. And I spoke with the author about where the Greens have been and where they're going. So, good evening, David. Yeah, good evening. It's nice to be back on uh, ICRT. Right, and of course you've written a book. It only took nine years, but of course the book is about Taiwan's green parties from their beginning to the current day. So let's start at the beginning of your book with, of course, the Green Party had initial success when it first formed in the mid-90s. I mean, and of course it won a legislative seat in the 1996 election. So why do you think it had such an impact in the mid-90s? What was happening in Taiwan in the mid-90s where the Green Party got votes? Well, I think that it's partly to do with, with its relationship with the, um, the DPP, because the DPP tended to be seen as the party of the environment. But I think a lot of social movement and civil society activists were starting to expect, um, kind of distrust the DPP on environmental and social movement issues at that point in time, um, as the DPP was kind of moving towards uh, becoming a competitive ruling party. Uh, so that was the, the, um, the, the reason for the breakaway at that point in the mid-1990s. One legislative seat. Did that come as a surprise to many people, do you think? Uh, I think it definitely um, uh, did. I mean, the first campaign was a pretty impressive uh, one. It was, it was very, very different from um, mainstream parties. And I think that was one of the things that really attracted me to the, uh, the topic, looking at a party that was much more idealistic compared to uh, the, the mainstream parties that I focused on in my earlier um, uh, work. And what were its policies in the early days? Um, well... One of the key kind of focus is, is something that's pretty topical today, and that's um, uh, nuclear power and opposition to the uh, fourth nuclear power station. So they were able to push um, uh, recall campaigns, for example, against um, KMT politicians that were pro-nuclear. And there was a, um, a Taipei City referendum on the fourth nuclear power station on the same day as the presidential and national assembly elections in 1996. And that was one of their key kind of um, uh, appeals. But they had other alternative um, appeals, such as on indigenous issues, on, on gender. And I think that kind of um, um, alternative nature was one of their kind of key appeals, and even is to this day. 
What about their, their support base in the early days? I take it this was mostly centred in the big cities in Taiwan. Yes, um, I think you're, you're right there that for much of the party's history, the focus had been on Taipei City. Uh, although, interestingly, the, the first seat they win is actually in, uh, in Yunlin, in the um, um, uh, southern central uh, part of, uh, of Taiwan. They tended to appeal to um, well-educated university students, um, urban dwellers, younger voters. And do they get influence from um, green parties in other countries, namely Europe? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things that really makes the, the book um, interesting internationally, that everyone knows about green parties in, uh, in Europe, um, and it's definitely the most international party uh, in Taiwan. So just in that first campaign in 1996, um, the Green Party of England and Wales sent a representative to um, support their uh, campaign. And that had a big influence on them, because I think the, the Green Party does uh, put a lot of stress on its international engagement. It's um, uh, a founding member of Asia-Pacific Greens and joins global Greens uh, events. So in, in a way, it's part of Taiwan's uh, civil society international relations. And do it take lessons from the European or other Green Parties from around the world when it formed its um, policies? Yeah, I would say there's mutual um, uh, learning. I mean, particularly in the early stages, they're trying to learn about what it means to be a international Green Party. So they are uh, welcoming delegations from uh, Europe, but also from um, Australia. For example, um, Bob Brown comes to Taiwan in the first year of the, uh, of the party. There's, there's representatives from Germany, from uh, the UK coming in those first uh, couple of years. And then later on, the uh, Taiwan Green Party does work together to support um, Green Parties in other Asian countries. For example, they've, they've been very supportive of, of Greens in South Korea and Japan, who actually emerge a little bit later than the, uh, the Taiwan Greens. But after 1996, it all sort of fizzled out for the Green Party. I mean, why was that? Uh, I think there's a number of reasons. Internal problems, not raising enough uh, funds, uh, key figures moving away to study abroad... Uh, the rise of the DVP actually coming to uh, power seems to have a, um, um, an impact um, uh, on the party. So I think there's a, a mixture of um, factors. I think one of the constant challenges for um, small parties, including movement parties, is that the, the big parties will often poach uh, their um, leading um, le- uh, figures. Uh, so if we look, for example, at the, the DVP, they've uh, often kind of um, uh, recruited Green Party figures. I mean, of course, when Chen Shui-bian came to power in 2000, did the Green Party sort of a, a follow him, or did they sort of... They weren't too adhering to some of his policies? Yes. I mean, there's always been a kind of a complex relationship between the Green Party uh, and the, the DUP. So on some issues, they have been able to kind of work together. At times, they've worked together on uh, anti-nuclear activism... Um, but there's always been a suspicion that the, the DUP is not really that sincere when it comes to uh, social, environmental um, uh, issues. So often there's a constant battle within the party. Uh, how close do we get to the DPP? Um And that's often in, in the book we, we see very heated arguments uh, about this question. The party does shift position um, uh, over time. And, of course, the Green Party has made a return in recent years. But, of course, it's not the Green Party that, from the mid-'90s. It's more of a, a wide-ranging Green Party that incorporates many, many issues. Yeah, I think you're right that the party does 
um, adopt quite a different kind of more uh, diverse image when it reemerges in around 2005, 2006. So it puts a lot more focus on things like um, gender issues, for example, LGBT rights. Um, it's, it's talking about same-sex marriage before the other mainstream parties. It's also the first party to um, nominate uh, openly gay candidates back in let me see, 20, 2010. So it's, it's often kind of ahead of its time. Uh, it takes the mainstream parties a bit longer to kind of uh, adopt uh, its position. Do you think that, that mix, the blend, the potpourri of ideals could maybe be stymieing the party from growing? I think you're right there. There's always a, um, uh, a challenge. Uh, how big is the market for um, these, some, some of these kind of niche issues? To what extent can they get a balance between idealism and actually uh, being effective in uh, elections? But I think that Taiwan's democracy does need um, diversity and alternative uh, voices. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's, I think it's quite important that these kind of civil society representatives do get into parliament, either in these kind of movement parties or influencing mainstream parties, such as the way that the social movements have tried to influence the, the DPP. And what about moving forward? Yeah, I mean, that is a, um, um, a, a good question, because after every election defeat, then uh, the question is raised about uh, what direction uh, do we take? Because in the last election in 2020, the party allied very closely to the DPP, uh, and that uh, alienated a lot of its former uh, supporters. So at the moment, the way I see it, the party is trying to kind of reconnect with its social movement uh, roots. And it's a kind of a challenging rebuilding uh, process. But it's a competitive market out there because there's a number of social movement-linked political parties that it has to compete against. So in that respect, the environment is a little bit more challenging than when it first emerges, when it's basically the only alternative party. But now there's others such as the New Power Party, the State Building uh, Party, to kind of compete uh, for that kind of growing but still limited uh, market of voters. But of course in Taiwan, these smaller parties seem to have a way of imploding. Yeah, yes, um, uh, you're right. And I suppose in a way that's one of the things that makes the, uh, the Green Party a little bit different. That a lot of small parties join elections, suffer a setback, and then basically just disappear. So, for example, some of the parties that were standing for election when I first came to Taiwan as a student, these kind of leftist parties, joined elections, had a little bit of um, limited success, and then collapsed and stopped taking part in elections. But the Green Party seems to uh, lose and then recover. Um, and maybe that's partly to, to do with the kind of international nature of the party that's able to, able to kind of reinvent uh, itself. That was me in conversation with Daffid Fell, the director of the Centre of Taiwan Studies, SOAS, the University of London. And before we go this week, the Kaohsiung Agriculture Bureau has ruled that the carrying of firearms, albeit of the BB gun variety, is legal when one is seeking to defend oneself against marauding macaques. Now, the issue came to light after video of a female student at the National Sun Yat-sen University in Kaohsiung toting a BB gun while waiting for a food delivery driver in front of one of the school's dormitories went viral. The video also showed another female student being chased by two Formosan macaques while carrying a bag with food, but she opted to 
to surrender her grub to the hungry apes who fled the scene of the bushwhack clutching the edible goodies. Now the video sparked heated debate regarding the legalities of using a BB gun to scare away macaques. But the Kaohsiung Agriculture Bureau said the students' carrying of a BB gun was not in violation of the Wildlife Conservation Act as it was for legitimate self-defence purposes and she did not go out with his sole intention to injure any of the apes. So, Klaus, when you're walking around the mountains, will you be going toting a BB gun in future? Or do you think maybe that's going a bit too far and possibly, well, macaques being wily creatures, they could very quickly learn that BB guns only sting for a couple of seconds? Well, I really hope that if it comes to the worst, I will have uh, find some other ways to scare those monkeys away. But uh, listening to this story, um, yeah, I mean, on the one hand... Maybe it's it's a good sign to see young Taiwanese people who who know how to handle a gun and are not afraid to use it. I mean, we had all these discussions about military preparedness. But on the other hand, I don't really want to see any kinds of guns out in Taiwanese society more widely, not even BB guns. I mean, this uh, this sounds a little bit like the government authorities are now giving carte blanche to, to people to carry those, those soft air guns with them and... I don't know, did, did they shoot a plastic pellets or did they shoot a metal, little metal balls? I mean, these these things can be really dangerous as well. And just giving out the message, yeah, it's it's not really dangerous and um, you can use it to, to shoot at animals when you think they are bothering you. I don't know if, if that's really a um, message we, we want to hear in Taiwanese society. I, yeah, I do think it's sending out the right, the wrong, sorry, the wrong <laughs> message. Um, you know, if you if you can shoot at a macaque, then what? If, then where do you stop? You know, do, do people start shooting dogs or cats with BB guns? Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of shooting BB guns at any animal. Um, at the same time, macaques are really scary, so there needs to be some kind of solution as to, to how to defend yourself from them, especially if they're stealing food. One of my friends was mugged once by a macaque and had his water bottle stolen, and he described being um, trying to face down a, a gang of monkeys, and, and it, it, it can be quite scary. And there's also there is a, a threat to um, to human health as well. I mean, you know, if, if someone gets injured. Um, so I don't know what the solution is to um, to defending yourself from macaques, but I think there does need to be some advice, especially on this uh, university campus where it seems to be um, an issue of co- coexistence. Um, and, you know, I, I think Gavin makes a good point as well of what if the macaques then get their hands on the BB guns and we're all in trouble. An armed macaque, Klaus? <laughs> Well, um, you better run or know how to climb a tree. Yeah, that's a dangerous situation. Climb a tree. Macaques can climb trees, mate. Yeah, I know. So you need to <laughs> learn how to climb faster. But, I mean, what did your friend do? They, they surrendered the water bottle or did they give it... So they, 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 he got it ripped out of their hand. Um, no, he, he he surrendered his. It was actually it was actually in India at the time. It wasn't here, but he said he was just walking along and he got surrounded by a gang of macaques and and they were getting quite aggressive and they clearly wanted his water bottle. So he he handed it over and then um, they fought over the bottle and he felt quite ashamed at having you know surrendered to the monkeys. But I think that was that was probably the right solution <laughs> of de-escalation in that particular instance. But. Yeah, it's it's a huge problem in India as well. Another friend woke up from an afternoon nap to find one sitting on his coffee table. Um, and uh, that's quite a scary situation. Does it actually happen that people are physically attacked or is it all about give me this, give me that and then 
the no, macaque people, will, will people be have off. been attacked yeah like yeah, physically hurt yeah. uh yeah i i, I guess so mm. yeah but of course, the, Klaus, the government here has always advised people when going to certain parts of Taiwan where there are macaques, do not have anything in your hand. Do not have any edible items in your hand. And obviously, bags are a problem, of course, because these macaques in certain parts of Taiwan are known to have grabbed bags off people. Yeah, so if, if they cannot go for the easy prey, then um, you, you got to up the stakes and then they go for whatever's in your bag, probably, yeah. There you go, and we'll leave it there here on Taiwan This Week, This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And Klaus Badenhagen. Nice to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out the Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.